right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Science in between. Welcome oh. back. Yeah. This is Scott. Yeah. I'm Ollie. Yeah. And this is the first episode of 2023. I know. Welcome. Yeah. It's just yeah. kind of crazy, which I want to start out by just making sure that everybody knows that 2023 is not a prime number. All right. Just in case you just were thinking, case hmm, you were thinking it sounds hmm. like it could be a prime number. It is, in fact, not a prime number. It's got you know? a three on the end, but that doesn't mean that it's prime. It, yeah. It, it It's actually divisible by one of my favorite prime numbers, which is 17. So oh, look at that. Yeah. Wow. I feel I feel smarter already. And we're just starting. Well, I know. I know. This is the this is the, what I bring to the table for you. Yeah. Scott. Yeah. Thank so. you. Well, it passes one of the tests. The first test is to add the numbers up. And if that number is divisible by three, then that's a really good start. You know, I mean, oh. it doesn't end in a, you know, it doesn't end in a even number. So that's like, oh, that's a possibility, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> eliminates like, two from the list. Right. <laughs> yes. Twos and fours and yeah. sixes. A- anything yeah. that's divisible by two <laughs> right. by extension. Uh, so that's one of the tests. That's test number one. Test number two is add them up. If it's at divisible by th- three, then yeah, nope, yeah. nope. So there you go. Nope. Not All right, prime. I'm done. That's my my contributions for the Ooh, episode. Maybe today. that's just should be the whole episode. Yeah, <laughs> we'll hey, just 2023, the prime episode. <laughs> yeah, not the prime episode. <laughs> yeah, great. Not a prime episode. Not that, a that prime could number. label any of our episodes though. So it's really <laughs> right. <laughs> just a handful. It's not prime. Not prime. Actually, I was looking back, and I think we have a uh, an episode titled that. I can't. I no. can't imagine we wouldn't uh, with, all the, with all the primey references that we make. But that's it's not just, what we're here to talk about. No, it is in fact not. If you're it, before we move on, I oh, think 2027 please. is the next <laughs> prime year. Thank God. So if you're because like I wondering, think people were right on the edge of their seats. Like I wonder what year the next year would be. That's yeah, prime. I'm pretty certain that 2027 is the next prime. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm oh, exhausted. I know. That was a lot. That was a, that was a powerful out of the gate start for us. Like, oof. I know. Yeah. All right. I like it. So, but but actually what we're going to talk about is lessons that we've learned. Yeah, so if year. you've been a yeah, if you've been a regular listener for for you know, what's this going on three and a half years, three and a half, you know, something mm, like that. It's two and a half years, right? Two and a half years it feels two and a half feels like feels like <laughs> feels like 100 years. Yes. <laughs> but but if you've been a regular listener, you know that our, you know, first episode of the year as typically like what what are the lessons we've learned from the previous year and some of the things we want to apply? You know, uh, to our our pathway to, going to forward, stuff. yeah, to, to, like to the future, to the future, mm-hmm. to the future and beyond. You know, what are we buzz light here now? <laughs> yes. Boop, it was there. Uh, it, it was there. 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 So I, you know what? I'm. I'll, I'll get started because we had a we had an episode. I went back um, in preparation for the show. I went back and looked at some of our old episodes and what some of the things we talked about this year. And I think um, one of the things that stood out to me. Was we we talked of uh, I guess maybe in like June or July of last year like why would anyone want to be a science teacher? Um, that was the, the the name of the episode and yeah. and I think that one of the things that I, I learned from this year is that the educator shortage is real. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing and um, it's especially real in in these high concentration high high content area you know high demand content areas like science and like art and foreign language and math. Yeah. Um, and and also it's happening with administrators. It's happening across the boards with like, you know, school psychologists and counselors. And, you know, it is a uh, a real challenge. It's been a real challenge in 2022. It's going to be a growing challenge in 2023 because, you know, I don't know how many – I mean, it's work that you and I have both been, you know, involved with in, in some capacity at our, at our respective institutions. Like we had a big, huge summit in in May of 2022 – that brought in a lot of educators, a lot of people to talk and try to come up with strategies to do this. I know you've been working on a um, sort of an expedited, you know, residency-based project program mm-hmm. for this. Yeah. Um, we have something similar at our institution, um, and it's it is it is a real pressing, um, eminent threat for our field, and it's yeah. something that it's going to take a lot of creative solutions. My my hope though. Is that the solutions that people pose, namely politicians and 
you know, folks in in bureaucratic positions, um, don't shortcut it. Like, I don't think we want to do anything that reduces the shortage by reducing the demands, like the qualifications. I think we should make mm-hmm. the pathway, you know, easier and be creative in terms of um, how we get people into the field. But I don't think we want to weaken the. I mean, we can like like eat real easy one offer student loan you know opportunities for people who want to be teachers forgiveness that would be an easy mm-hmm. one that's a, like a like there's so many people who go yeah if i'm going to go $100,000 in debt or more why wouldn't i why would i become a teacher that you know i'm going to mm-hmm. get paid like it would take me years and years to pay that off you know whereas you know loan forgiveness would be something that would be huge um so that's that's the thing i think i've learned i learned from last year that i i hope that I'm going to, I know I'm going to be working more on in, in the coming year to try to come up with solutions. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I mean, this could be an episode onto itself. Probably many of the things that we're going to mention today could be so. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the patterns in, in historically and in other places uh, when this sort of thing happens, uh, California being the one that I'm, I'm most familiar with um is that typically what happens is that actually the the requirements often get ratcheted up for the for the more formal institutions and that creates this sort of space for for informal right. alternatives um preparation areas to move in or preparation pathways to to move in and replace so, and often those are given lots of latitude because they make the argument that there's this huge shortage and they need, we need, we need to get things going fast um, and quickly. And, and that often lowers the standard. So. Yeah. I think that one of the solutions I know that uh, some folks are are working in in Pennsylvania on is, you know, having teaching um, categorized as an apprenticeship. And what that, you know, it sounds like, you know, oh, big deal. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of is an apprenticeship already, but if it gets classified that way um, by the federal government and then it opens up opportunities for, you know, support, financial support for, you know, teacher candidates so they can get, mm-hmm. you know, cause like if you're apprenticing to be a plumber, right. Um, the there's, there's federal money to support that. Mm-hmm. Um from the Department of Labor. And so I know some um, Southern schools, I think Tennessee might've done this. Um, and what they had done was categorize teaching as that. And with that, it it helped, you know, provide some financial incentives for teachers, teaching yeah. analysts. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. All, All right. right. You have a lesson learned? Um, boy, do I have a lesson learned? I mean, I, I guess, you know, to some extent, you've mentioned this, uh, the work that we've been doing, the professional development work we've been doing with the state. So I'm going to I'm going to build on that a little bit. I mean, I think one of my lessons learned that I think even was was part of the impetus for this podcast originally when we started it uh, was the challenges. And and I think, you know, maintaining my opinion, I guess, or reinforcing my opinion that um that zoom based education is uh is at best a stopgap measure that it that it really you know we've been doing this professional development where we started with a face to face set of sessions and then we've been doing all remote zoom based sessions we're going to go back to face to face in april um and you know i think both us and the participants have been pretty clear that while there are there are some advantages i'm not I'm not going to poo-poo the Zoom as an entire uh, approach to education, but it's very difficult for me uh, to think about it as a as a really viable alternative. It's something that you can use as as an emergency stopgap, which I think is what we did use it for mostly during the pandemic. Um, but I think the idea that this is going to be a replacement technology for meeting people people face-to-face in a classroom uh, anytime soon, I think, has been even more reinforced for me, um, you know, in this context of the professional development work. And it it does make me think a lot about what that means for higher education, because there's, there is a push for lots of obvious reasons in higher ed to, um, to 
open up more opportunities for remote instruction. Right. Um, so I, I really, uh, you know, I think that that concerns me, um, because it has a lower, lowest common denominator problem for me that, that it's going to be a rush to the bottom. And, um, the goal will be delivering the cheapest education that we can make the most money from, um, as the, as the driving force for educational decision-making. And, and that concerns me. Yeah. I think that, you know, connecting back to like one of the themes of our, our, our show is that, you know, education, whether it's professional development or, you know, our traditional, you know, higher education that we, you know, work with our undergraduate, graduate students. I mean, the, it's relational work yeah. and it, it's still really hard to do this kind of relational work in, in, you know, through technology, technology through zoom. And, and so while, you know, I think if I, were to see some of those folks that we've spent, you know, the last year and a half doing professional development with, you know, we've only really seen some of those folks face to face, like a, like once or twice, yeah. you know, it would be really hard to like really connect with them. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we've spent hours with them and, and I think um, I know there's a push at our institution to move more meetings, like more of our committee meetings and things online. Cause it, you know, provides greater access for people. And that, and that's certainly a, a uh, a way to look at it is it provides greater access to people to participate. However, that participation is not what it can be. Like it's not, you know, they can be there, they can be present in the meeting, but the types of relationships that are formed. And I think committee work, you know, is all about like getting work done. And that work is a, a lot of times, you know, based on the relationships you form with the other people that you're working with. And so it's not just about getting a task done, but it's also about, you know, getting to know your colleagues and getting to find that the space between the colleagues for, you know, opportunities for, you know, growth and work and, you know, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it is the lowest common denominator. It's just like, it focuses on the transmission, right? The transmission of information mm-hmm. rather than the, the, the fostering of relationships, even, yeah. the, even with our best intent, you know, yeah. No, I mean, I think given that we're just coming out of a of holiday season where a lot of people were spending time with family, um, it it I think there's a, a direct analogy there. Like it it's very difficult. I mean, having phones and FaceTime and Zoom and those kinds of technologies is great. Um, but seeing your family members in person right. and spending time with them is not replaceable with that. I mean, it just isn't. Um, no matter how much we th- want it to be um it it's just you know spending time with people is is a higher bandwidth experience to put it yeah. in technological terms i mean there's lots of little things that you get from people that you, when you're in person with them that cannot be done through zoom and uh and that that is those little things um are are the you know the key some of the key pieces of building relationships with people and uh and so i think it's you know it's important um you know there's an analogy that i always think of in education which is the analogy um between education and and nutrition and and the the specific example for me is that you know when we first found out about macronutrients like fats proteins and carbohydrates we were like organized our whole diet around these three things and it's it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that we've started to realize that actually this stuff is a lot more complicated and you can't just focus on those three macronutrients because that doesn't tell you how to pick a healthy diet like you need all this other stuff that's that's small in terms of the the quantity that you're receiving and some of that's vitamins and some of that's macro or micronutrients but but that stuff is what actually makes you healthy. The macronutrients, if you only attend to them, is not going to make you healthy. And I think Zoom is a similar thing. It sort of is the macronutrients of um, of education in the sense that you focus on, oh, the ed- the education is all about this information, the information getting from one place to another. But Or maybe information is the macronutrients of education. And, and we forget that without all the other stuff – that those macronutrients are are like high highly processed food. They don't do you any good. They're not healthy for you. So that was the most Scott thing you've ever said on Thank this. Thank you. Like that is like a very Scott analogy <laughs> right there. You know? 
yes. And that's not that's like fine. a that's not no, like no. A, a criticism. I didn't, t- at all. I didn't take that as a criticism. Right. I, I took that as a as a recognition of a long-standing relationship between two friends who is like yeah yeah hey yeah. dude hey that, dude this that's is, a very this you is, you that's a very you thing. Well, I I will say this one of the things to kind of build off of that is one of the things I learned from this year was you know, connected to this is, is that while, you know, we've been doing this professional development and we've been doing a lot, a lot of it through, um, you know, synchronous means through zoom and stuff. I think it's still really important that people have the opportunities for, you know, professional development, that's high engagement that yeah. is, you know, helps them grow. And there's mentoring that is, is important too. And, and I know that, and our work with the teachers uh, that and and the points of contact that we've been working with, they they're hungering for it. They see the need for it, and they've like we've gotten so much good feedback from people who say, "Yeah, this is awesome." And then I also think back about like my own, you know, this is where it kind of like switches from a "Hey, this is a joy" to not so much a joy, is that I don't know how many real opportunities I have in my role at my institution to get, you know, that kind of professional development. I mean, you know, it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I hunger for it too. And I have to seek it out. I have to like create opportunities to, to form book clubs with, with colleagues or, you know, engage in projects that are going to help me grow and learn because, you know, I, I don't always see um, those opportunities presented in the work that I do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, we do think a lot about other people's professional growth, whether those are pre-service teachers or in-service teachers in professional development, but we, we often are not very good at thinking about our own professional growth in a, in a very intentional way, right? And saying yeah. like, hey, these are things that I, I need too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think you and I are both re- reflective practitioners, right? We're both mm-hmm. like people who think about what we do and try to improve on what we do. And, uh, but there's always the thing that I go, well, am I getting the fullest picture? Is there something that like somebody can bring to the the table that I wasn't even in my field of vision that I'm just like, Oh wow. That just completely changes how I see my teaching. This is how I see my interactions with students. Those are the opportunities that I, I feel are lacking, right. Mm-hmm. Are, are, you know, so it's a powerful thing. Professional development and mentoring can be powerful things for, for growth. It's just that, you know, we have to look for more opportunities for that. You know? Indeed. Yeah. All right. So what's your next one? Uh, Well, I, I, I put it on the list because we, we've spent some episodes talking about it. You know, it's coming. I know it's coming. You know, it's coming. I think, you know, the thing I've learned is that chat GPT is going to change assessment. It's going to change education. It's going to have a real impact in the short term and the long term. And uh and we we don't recognize I mean I think we've spent we've dedicated at least an episode and a half talking about this. Um one that was focused specifically on it. The other one that kind of started someplace else and ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that and I don't want this to turn into that, but I think a lesson I've learned is artificial intelligence we're just beginning to see that and I think that one of the things I've I've been reading there's so many articles about this and so many yeah I think that um the thing that even there's one the New York Times Sunday Magazine interviewed mm-hmm. somebody this weekend who was really working in this space I was just going to mention that one too yeah and I think the big thing for me is that if we're focusing on you know the actual content of what you know the artificial intelligence offers that's one thing and you know. You know, if that's kind of the kind of assessment we're going to do, it's going to be really hard for us to, you know, identify that it's a chat GPT and artificial intelligence. But I think that the person who was interviewed, and I, I can't remember her name, she's like, like, it's still lacking in like the emotional things. It's still lacking in, you know, it. you can tell, you can tell that it's in, and right. I think I should, you know, maybe pull up the quote that she had, but, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty clear that. Um, it's going to make a mark in education in terms of the papers that students write, the things that they submit, you know, whether it's a discussion board post or whatever, 
It's going to cause us to doubt some of the work that we're going to do, that we're going to get from students. It's going to create a whole list of plagiarism issues um, at our institutions. That's going Mm -hmm. to happen. Um, But I think the the other part we're going to see is there's going to be some opportunities for us too. Um, And I'm excited about that. Um, But I'm also really weary uh, and mindful of some of the negatives that are going to come in. And I think we're going to see the negatives first. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I read this article too. So it was uh, Yejin Choi, if I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, so she's a, um, a professor and studies artificial intelligence and computer science and was uh, at at MIT and was a MacArthur genius. Um, but the thing that struck me was not as much the emotional piece, but what she talked about as as the big differentiation between um, AIs and humans is the notion of common sense and that's con- right, yeah. And, yeah, and context. And I think we talk about context a lot, but I think she really has had some fascinating things to say about um, why rule based systems, which is what AIs ultimately will always be because of the way they're organized, even if they're complicated uh, rule based systems, they'll be rule based systems that. They have difficulty because, and we talk about this a lot too, that words don't have clear specific meanings in all contexts. And this is why uh, human language is such a complicated thing, independent of all the translations and all the other stuff. Like she was, she uses the example of birds flying and saying birds can fly. That's one of their defining characteristics. And then, and then she goes on to talk about how actually it's much more complicated than that, right? Like penguins don't fly. So they're a class of thing that we've grouped with birds that don't actually fly. But then she also talked about the nuance of things like, well, baby birds don't fly because they can't yet. And there are birds who are covered in oil or have some other injury or some other thing, and then they can't fly. And for humans, that all is common sense. Like they don't have to rethink the whole category of bird because penguins or babies or birds covered in oil can't fly. Computers don't have that kind of common sense, AIs, the way that they're developed. Now, this is something she's interested in working on, but um, but that idea that words mean something but they also mean something within the context in which they are used, I think is really fascinating. And and the other thing that was in there that was chat GPT related that I thought was fascinating is, I, and maybe I just didn't until she talked about it, understand the way the model works for chat GPT. But basically what it's doing is looking algorithmically at the next the word yep. that is most likely to come next after the current word that it's it proximity has. based. Yeah. It's, that, so it's this distribution system of like, Oh, this, the word with is where I am at this sentence. The likely next word in all the other pieces that have been written that are similar to this or about this topic, the next word would be this. And so it it really is um, now it understands or is, you know, clued into rules of grammar and things like that. So it's not going to, be you know it's not going to make a sentence that doesn't make any sense at all but it's doing all this work you know brute force by looking at what the next most likely word is which tells you something about you know if we want to talk about comprehension versus decoding like what it's doing it's really doing a lot of decoding and almost no comprehension yeah and and that's why it makes mistakes you know because it's looking for things that are nearby and sometimes those things are you know um, comparing things negatively, right? This thing is not right. like this. And then it's saying, well, it had this next to it. So these things must be, you know, somehow related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that it, it, we, we can't understate how big Chachi GPT is going to be in the very near future. Like the spring semester, you know, for yeah. teachers is going to be bananas. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, it is because I think this, um, this distinction that you made between the output and the algorithm that produces the output, right? So her, her talk and critique is really about the underlying algorithm and what, what is AI actually capable of, as opposed to what sort of products will it make? Um, There was another article in the New York Times about, um, about AI art and and a woman. Yeah, I read that article. Oh, yeah. Like her. That was how, how she feels about the idea that AI might be able to use her body of work to produce new art 
that it that could yeah. is in her style or whatever, right? She was and, a cartoonist, yeah, yeah, a cartoonist that. And my my daughter is a a graphic design major, and she's like, you know, just so against artificial intelligence because she sees it as like completely taking people's work, and sure. you know, and and not. Like in a, I mean, there's the copyright part where it's like transformative. You're creating new art from old art, but this is not, this is not that. This is not someone being creative. This is like putting it forth and, you know, just having a computer do it. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, it's like imitating that style in such a way that it uh, devalues the original artist. And it's like, oh gosh. Right. I you mean, know? in this, but this is true of all AI, right? Is that it is... But the you know well we we're not going to go down this road again because we've already been down it. But yes. I do think this this idea that you're seeing from from your daughter and from artists and musicians and and you know increasingly I think authors now um, is is this fear of replacement right the fear yeah. that AI and and certainly as far back as Skinner there's been a, an effort in education to replace teachers with computers right um with this with, with the teaching things, machine the teaching, the teaching machine. machine yeah so so it's not like a new idea to think about computers and ai computers and spe increasingly specifically replacing teachers in classrooms um and i do think you know it, it, our natural response is ick um, and I think also that is based in a fear of being replaced, right? The idea that um, we could be replaced by an AI that, you know, some kid's going to put on a virtual headset and have a virtual teacher that, that can be responsive to them individually. Um, yeah, I mean, that feels like um, if it feels both gross and scary at the same time. Maybe that's why it feels gross. But yeah. um, but it is it is. It is something that we're going to have to increasingly grapple with. Yeah, I had to put it on the list. I mean, yeah. I had to. It was. It was just. It, it was almost like, you know, a nuclear bomb went off. At, you know, in the fall, like in early December, it was like, yeah, everybody, everybody in so many different domains was talking about this. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the real question, and I do think it's potentially different, um, but. This has echoes for me of the MOOC conversation, which yes. which was this like, this is it. This is the, you know, to your point, the nuclear weapon that's going to destroy higher education that will no longer need all these universities. Everybody will just learn through MOOCs and that'll be the end of it. Um, of course, that turned out to be not even not even close to true. No. It, 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 it was barely even a BB gun uh, relative to a higher education. It has had almost no impact on the, on the way that we think about higher ed um, or education in general for that matter. Um, but uh, at the time, everybody, all everybody. the smart it was like people. The year were saying, of the MOOC. It yeah, was the year of the MOOC. I think, yeah. And this, this is going to, you know, this is going to completely decimate higher education. So, I mean, I think, Systems are very adaptable. So the question is, how is higher ed and how are faculty and and students going to adapt to this new universe? Um, at some point, there is going to be a technology that is going to be that kind of nuclear bomb. I'm not sure chat GPT is it, um, but uh, let's wait and see. Um, I do think uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, I mean, I think for classes like mine, chat, chat GPT has zero effect. Um, because my class is not a test-based environment where yeah. students are producing material, uh, you know, ostensibly entirely on their own without support um, and in some sort of enclosed box. Uh, so, you know, it's clearly going to have impact on courses that are large lecture hall classes that have yeah. essay assignments or things like that. Um you know, it's going to it's going to have an impact on on, you know, it, potentially, I guess it could have an impact on our graduate courses um, in that, you know, I have, for example, uh, I'm teaching a graduate course this coming spring and there's a weekly reading reflection. So is it possible that ChatGPT could produce a weekly reading reflection? I don't know. Maybe that's something we'll discuss as a class. Um but it's a possibility, right, that that they could say these are the articles I read. 
can you produce a, I don't know if it does that level of specificity or not. It'd be fascinating to find out, but we'll see. I teach, I'm teaching a, a emerging technology class this spring for mm. doctoral students. It's a, it's for ed leaders. Um, and yeah. I'm finalizing the syllabus and this is definitely going to be a topic. Arti- artificial oh, intelligence is for sure. Absolutely. I think we're, we're going to see it. And uh, this is my last comment before we move on to something else is that I think that um, where we're going to see it as scholars is, I mean, it's just going to happen that someone's going to put together a, you know, some sort of publication that they're going to submit for review, right? Yeah, sure. And it's going to, and I, if it it'll, hasn't it'll already, it'll probably be physicists because it's all right. physicists that do this. They're, shit. they're like, they're, and they're going to be like, ha ha ha, hey, after it gets put in print, <clears throat> right, right, then it's going to be like, hey, this is what happened, and reviewers didn't, couldn't tell, right. and then it's going to like put people on on their heels a little bit, you know? Yep. Yeah, well, especially given how difficult the peer review process is right now and finding reviewers and yeah. Yeah, I mean maybe that'll be what academics will use ChatGPT for is writing reviews of other people's papers. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> I'm going to just I'm going to take that down. Take Dreon's <laughs> body of work. I'm going to put it into ChatGPT and then I'm going to say write a review of his newest piece that I just reviewed. Here it is. That is that's great. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, you got a, another lesson for us? Um, well, I, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this one. So I'll just talk a little bit about it. But I have talked a little bit on the podcast about this. But <clears throat> one of the things that I feel I learned a, a lot about this fall was and and it's bled into the professional development to some extent too, but from my from my pre-service teachers is um this, you know, I've always tried to figure out how to make teacher education feel more like ambitious science teaching, which is to say, starting with a, a students' initial ideas about a thing and then using experiences and analysis of those experiences to improve their model, to improve their understanding, to make it better, right? And um, how to figure out how to structure that in a, in a pretty, um, you know, systematic way. So I think this fall was the first opportunity I had to to get a little closer to that um with these questions I asked and we we definitely have talked about this piece. Right, of it. absolutely. Um when they're making observations in classrooms thinking about what is the impact of that on the classroom community and what is the impact of that on the um this their ideas about science, the kids in the classrooms ideas about science as a practice. Um, so I think that process and the building up of that, it's still very, um, it's still nascent and janky and not where I want it to be, but the, it's, it's got some of the initial pieces that I feel are robust. And so now it's starting to think about how to craft that into something a little more systemic, um, and I'm going to work on it in the spring with their student teaching because they'll still be in the field and they'll still be doing this kind of thing, but won't be quite as powerful as it is in the fall where they're talking with each other and, and all seeing the same kinds of things. But I think my lesson learned is that just like in science, the most powerful way to transform people's understandings of things is to get their initial ideas and then have them investigate their own ideas through a process of experience, um, structured, guided experience. But that, and that that is possible to accomplish in a teacher education environment. It's it's um it's always been my sort of you know dream or Rosetta Stone or whatever. Like my goal, the Golden Fleece <clears throat> to get to is this is this space. And I used to try to do it through video, and it never could work the way I wanted. Right? I did it with video analysis um, for years. Yeah, I- yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I, I see this as a, a direct connection of your previous work where, mm. you know, around this professional vision, right? Where what, like looking to, you know, but it was, you know, you focused on like discourse moves and things like that. And I think this is a really powerful lens that you're, mm. you're offering here, not just for science and science education, but almost for teachers in general, because sure. it's like, you know, because classroom community is something that's important, right? And, yep. and how, what it's, you know, developing in terms of how they see whatever content area. So I see this, you know, as this develops further as, as really being 
very powerful. And I think that what it also does is it kind of connecting to a, a lesson I've learned, which because we talked a lot about discourse this year. We've talked about discourse throughout this, but I think it just came, it kind of came in this perfect intersection at one point this year where I was talking about it in my classes on, on campus. And then we were talking about it with the teachers with professional development. And I was seeing it out in, you know, my observations with student teachers. And so it was like this perfect confluence, right. Of, of discourse talk, right. Talk mm-hmm. around discourse, but it's all about like what we as teachers are doing and how we're doing what and what that fosters with the students that we're working with, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's the critical thing with this these, this lens that you're providing is, you know, what what are you what are you facilitating? What are you really teaching the students? Not just about like the content, but about the bigger things, like yeah. what's getting fostered around the community. If community is an important part and we both believe it is, then what what are your moves? What are the discourse moves that you're doing? What are the things that you're doing to facilitate the community? community in your classroom. And, and I think that's, you know, that's something I've, I, I knew it, but it's something that I guess I don't want to say relearned, but it's something that, um, you know, in, in a really real sense this past fall, just kind of reemerged and like kind of hit in the head of saying, Hey, this stuff is still important, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And I think I agree. And I think um, for me, it, it, the analogy that, that carries from science into teaching is, what we're trying to do is help them help the teachers, science teachers, understand the invisible causes of the things that are happening in classrooms yeah. in the same way that in science, you're looking at, well, what are the invisible causes of the things that you're seeing? Why is it that, you know, if you've got two balloons that are attached to each other and one has more air in it and the other has less air in it and you open a valve between them, how the air is going to flow there. Right. Um, and that, that you can see it happening, but, Thinking about what caused it is what makes it science and what helps you expand your understanding in a way that lets you then map that onto other contexts. And I think it's the same in teaching. What we're trying to do is help them identify what are those invisible processes, the norms that are being set in a way that you don't see because it's happening so subtly in small pieces and break that down and say, okay, well, what, what are those things? And then how do I start to develop intentionality for, for accomplishing those same things? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Cool work. Mm. Yeah. I, I like, that was a great episode. That was one when mm. I was like, you know, just sitting and, you know, like, just going, wow, Scott's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is quite an episode for it is. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You know, First it's the bad macronutrients analogy that's that's uh so Scott and now you know high compliments. So I appreciate yeah. that. Well, so what, I, do you, I have, so what do you got? I have I have one more on my list and and I would say this is another time that uh I, I don't know, it was probably you know spring ish when we were we had some episodes we were talking about with feedback and, you know, mm. um, and I think at the time I was, I was struggling with uh, a student in one of my graduate classes. So this was like, this is like, mm-hmm. a, it was an ongoing challenge I was having with the, a student over the courses of uh, several weeks in, in the spring semester. And I think that, um, you know, and I'll, I'll put this in like kind of a um, kind of trite Feedback's important, right? <laughs> Feedback is really important, right? I know that, like, that understates it completely, but it's like, you know, feedback, like providing really effective feedback, just like all, like fostering, you know, a community in your classroom requires some intentionality. Feedback, giving good feedback, mm. is a time intensive process that requires teachers at all levels to be intentional with. You know, what type of feedback and how it's read and how it's received by the individual student, because sometimes it's not received the way you intend it to. Mm. And so for it to be effective, you know, it's got to you got to close that loop. You've got to make sure that the way you are offering it is the way it's received. And because um, if your goal is really to support growth and learning, then um, and there's a disconnect there, then. Yeah, I think that was um, one of the lessons that I, I guess I relearned or it was like, because, you know, you get it even, you know, we've both been doing this stuff for, you know, decades. And I think that the 
it's really valuable when these lessons reemerge and it's like, Hey, you gotta, what you're doing. Cause I think that, you know, even though I've done this for a, a bunch of years and, and I think that I, I do it pretty well, um, the students we're working with are changing and, right. and we have to make sure that the way we communicate is still as effective. And, and that comes back to that ref- reflective practitioner thing is that, you yeah. know, we, we have to make sure that the methods we're using are as effective as possible. And that requires a level of intentionality and, and some relearning um, because the students, because our students are in, are, are, are in different times and space. And so yep. the students we worked with who, you know, were in the middle of a pandemic were going through a, some pretty traumatic experiences, depending on where their you know, situations were. That's not something that either of us had worked at before, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, we provide feedback that can be received by the individuals we're working with. And, you know, I know that's long-winded. No, but no, think- it was not long-winded at all. It was very uh, articulate and clear. I mean, I think it wow. is it is imp- incredibly important stuff, right? And that, um, and and maybe even you know we've talked about this distinction, but the distinction between assessment and, and evaluation. Yeah, you know, feedback falls very much into the first camp. Like it's assessment, it's not evaluation. Though there there could be evaluation in it, but. But good feedback isn't you did a good job or you did a bad job because that's unhelpful. That no, doesn't nobody no. grows from that. Uh, people grow from, hey, Ali, I watched you teach that lesson. Here's some things I noticed about the way that you did what you did. And here are some things that you may want to ask questions about or think about as you move forward. Here's some possible suggestions. Right. So it's not a good, bad. It's not a value. It's it's not the evaluative. It's the assessment piece yeah. that is so important. And I think the other thing that is super important about feedback <clears throat> that that I'll add to what to your list is you know you hear about the 10,000 hour rule right which is Malcolm Gladwell made this famous with his um I can't remember if it was tipping point or outliers outlier. yeah okay. it's the outlier so um he made this point that like experts people who are experts in their craft or their skill or their art do it for 10,000 hours. Like that's sort of the minimum baseline. But what is not there that's so important um, that he underemphasizes or doesn't mention is that it's the kind of practice that you do. So just practicing for 10,000 hours is not what gets you to that. What happens, what what you need is you need feedback. You need yep. to focus on specific parts of your practice that need growth and practice there, right? So if you're a basketball player and you're a really good three-point shooter and all you do is practice three-point shooters, three-point shots, your game isn't going to improve. What you need to do is have somebody say, look, you're a great three-point shooter. That's good. Here's what you need to do. You need to get better at driving to the basket, right? And here's how we're going to practice that. And you're going to do a lot of practice on that because you're good at three-pointers and we don't need to practice that as much. It doesn't mean we stop doing it. But that same thing is true with feedback. What feedback does is it focuses the attention on the thing, the areas where you need to grow. And that's how you get better. You don't get better just by teaching. You get better by teaching and getting feedback about where you can grow. And then you can focus your attention on that area and practice those things and, and move forward from there. So I do think, yeah, I mean, and it, it's feedback is relational, right? It's, yep. it's how you build yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the other thing for us as teachers connected to that, and this is maybe connecting a lot to the experience I had with this, the student in the spring is that, you know, when we have a, uh, a student who is receiving our feedback in ways that we aren't intending. Um, that sometimes that doesn't present itself in in a really um, direct way, right? We're mm. not always going to be like, like sometimes it's it's going to be like, you know, because not all the students are going to be have the emotional capacity or intellectual capacity to just say, "Hey, I don't understand this feedback." Right. Some are going to get defensive, and some are sure. going to get emotional, and some are going to get, and so we have to be ready. That um and be like really mindful of you know interpreting those that communication you know yeah. and that I mean that's getting really specific with an individual student but you know yeah well but I think the general rule is true too right I mean the the um 
the important thing about feedback is that it's only useful if the person receiving it actually understands it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if yeah. you just write a, a note in the margin of their paper, you know, you should try... I don't know. Some I'm not going to think of a good comment here, but you write some comment in the margin to to your student and hand the paper back to them. You know, maybe this ties back to the AI thing in the sense that those words aren't in any necessarily in in the right context, and so they may not understand what you're trying to give them there, even though it's clear to you. So that idea that you're getting at, which is how do we think carefully about how we communicate our feedback to people so that they understand it in the way that it's intended and in the context in which it is useful, then, um, then we may not be giving good feedback. And that makes, yeah. that's one of the things that makes feedback so freaking hard, right? Is that you, you, you don't know the context in which the person is going to take it. And so you have to do your best and then hope that the context is, um, you know, communicated well, otherwise, yeah, as you say, can make people sad or can, mad or all those it can get kind of bumpy. It can get kind of bumpy. <laughs> a little bit, a little, a little bit. bit. All right. So you have, you have anything else? Lessons learned uh, before I, I think you jump we, into Joyce? Yeah, I think we should we can jump to Joyce because uh, I had AI on my list, but we already I knew that because uh, I knew it was coming. So you know, yeah, I think we're okay to to go to Joyce. So I think you should start. So uh, okay, this is going to be uh, this is going to be the so like obvious joy. All right, yeah, that's not, why like, I thought you should start. No, no, it's actually not that. It's going to oh. be like no, it's not. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it, it should be like, I, I just spent it, uh, a week in Paris and I could talk on and on about the joys of Paris, but, um, but I'm going to say I, I spent some time on, on planes watching, uh, Jordan Peele movies. Oh. And, and so I have to say, like, I, um, I was a fan of Jordan Peele back in, you know, when, when he was, Kim Peele. Uh, um, and I didn't watch us because I'm not a big horror movie fan. And my daughter was like, well, have you seen Nope? And I'm like, no, it's a horror movie, right? And she's nope. like, no, it's not at all. <laughs> and uh, you should you should watch it. I think you'd really get a lot out of it. And so I watched Nope, which was awesome. Yeah. And then I watched uh, Get Out, mm. which was more awesome. Yes. And so um, I think it's like saying, hey, the Beatles are a great band. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like, Here's the thing you might have missed. But... <laughs> yeah. It's like Get Out is from like, what, I don't know, like three years yeah. ago, four years ago. Uh, so more I'm, than that, I'm I late, think, but yeah, go ahead. I'm late to this party yeah. and I get it. But it was that I was m like misinformed or I misunderstood uh, what what he brought to the table. Yeah. But just the, you know, social commentary that he presents in his movies in really – subtle and overt ways. Yeah. There's just so they're so rich. It's yeah. so rich with things to talk about and wow. Just wow. Um yeah. yeah. So Jordan Peele brilliance get out awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh nope is and I had read a book on it's a, a lot about, you know, um film and and you know taking film and and I'd re re read a book years ago about Edward Moy Moybridge who was the guy who took the first um, moving pictures of, mm -hmm. the, of the horse, yeah. which is plays a role in this movie, you know, a very small role, but it, it's, it's there. Um, and so it just was like, it was right in my wheelhouse and these movies yeah. are awesome. And so Jordan Peele, if you, if you haven't watched these movies, I'm not a big horror guy. So I, I, I'm probably never going to watch us, yeah. um, but that's not all he brings to the table. Yeah. No. Awesome. Yeah. Same for me. Awesome. I've never seen us. I don't have any, interest in seeing us i don't think though i have heard it's great as well but yeah um well and just as long as we're on the key and peel thing i have i of course have to mention that keegan michael key is a penn state grad and, yes uh, and and often he just recently appeared in a video where he came to penn state and pretended to be coach franklin again because they have they they look similar enough that he can sort of pull it off shaved head yeah. black guy uh um but hilarious uh video of him like Basically, Franklin walks off stage and hands the the remote to Keegan Michael Key, and he comes in and just carries on as if he's Coach Franklin, and the whole yeah. audience, his, the whole team, just goes nuts. Anyway, that is not my joy. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think about. I mean, I you know it's the holiday time of the year, so food and drink are are things that you know you tend to think about. Um, so I'll mention. 
I have mentioned other foods that are sort of like family traditions around this time of year in the past. So I'll mention a new one, which uh, new, new to the audience, not new to my family, um, that came to me from my wife's side of the family, which are uh, these cookies that she makes called jammies, um, which are very simple, like butter cookies with jam in the middle of them. And then they're sliced on a diagonal. So they're very they're thin and um so they feel bite sized like you're not really e- eating anything uh you know too uh indulgent but um but these are one of those things that um just when those cookies are on the table you know it's the holiday season and it's just a in addition to them being really good there's all the nostalgia and family uh associations with that from going back to being with her family um, in New York, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, all the way through to my kids now thinking of that as a holiday treat. So, um, you know, whatever those foods are, everybody has those foods. Um, Often they're sweet related, but they're not always from the holidays. Um, This is definitely one for me that, you know, is, is just nice when those come out. It's like, ah, yeah, that's good. I have my first almond Kringle. You know, I know. Congratulations. I Welcome know. to the party. Uh, based Talk based about on it. your recommendation, it was awesome. It was awesome. I go to yeah. town on a Kringle. Yeah. yeah. But I, you know, the other flavors, uh, you know, a friend of mine picked up another flavor. I think the, what was it? Like the cherry or raspberry or something. Raspberry is another one they carry. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not as much of a fan. I mean, not. No, no I don't like raspberry as much. I like, I like the two nutty ones. I like the almond and the pecan, not yeah. a raspberry and the pumpkin. Mm-mm. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Can't, you can't have vegetables on my Kringle. Oh, what I'm saying it's a, a. I guess pumpkin is a. Is it a vegetable? I, I guess know. so. Yeah, I, I don't know. know that. Those are another one of those where you know words mean things, but only sort of. It's like tomatoes aren't vegetables; they're fruit. So I don't know. I guess I pump, know. pumpkin are probably fruit because they have seeds on the inside, right in there. You're asking the wrong person. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, we're physicists. What do we know? Yeah. What do Ima- we know? Imagine a pumpkin as a as a sphere. Well, it's already <laughs> sort of a sphere. Yeah. And it's mass equally distributed. Yeah. Yeah. That just went down a nerdy rabbit yeah, hole did. right there. Well, if yeah. we had started with cow, it would have really been nerdy. But now yeah. it's just sort of, yeah. Well, what's a perfect bookend? We started with prime numbers. We ended with, you know nerdy yeah. physics stuff <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> great and that i think is where we should end the episode <laughs> yes we should we'll catch you next time in between see you then i know